We're continuing our series in prayer. Um, all the text, everything you need to know will be up on the screen, so if you don't have your Bibles, that's fine. Um, there are th- three main objectives that I want to deal with um, in the talk tonight. First of all, I want to explain that the kingdom is the picture that runs right throughout the Bible. Okay, so Jesus deals with the kingdom pretty explicitly in the New Testament, and you'll probably think, maybe you could think of verses where he talks about the kingdom, but in the Old Testament, he deals with it as well. There's pictures of the kingdom in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a theme that runs right throughout the Bible. So if I make that point, that's my first point I'm going to try and make. Second point will be that, to explain that praying for God's kingdom will change the way that we pray. I don't know how you've coped with thinking about the Lord's Prayer. I don't know how familiar you are with it. I feel a bit exposed as a 36-year-old Christian, who's somebody who feels like he's been a Christian forever, and I'm coming under the teaching about the prayer, and I'm thinking about it in a different way. I don't know if you've ever thought about what it means to pray your kingdom come. I don't know how much that features in your prayer life. And finally, and we've read the passage that we're going to look at, we're not going to get there for another 10 or 15 minutes, we're going to look at a prayer that Paul prayed. We're going to look at the second one of those two readings, and there's some really good practical advice for us from Paul about how we pray, not in a selfish way, we pray in a way that honors God. So we're going to look at those, those couple of things. I'm going to read the Lord's Prayer through, uh, and as I do it, I guess I want you to think about, about your past experiences of it, how you've, how you've heard it in the past, and, and what it does to you when you hear it, what it means to you. So I'm going to read it through. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgotten our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I wonder what your, what your mind was doing then. Do you know what my mind was doing then? Do you know what my history with this passage is? I was just so scared that I would be the kid in school who couldn't say it verbatim. So my mind immediately, that's what I've done with, with the prayer. I've thought I, this, the most important thing is that I can say it from start to finish and not trip up along the way. So it's become something I just can repeat without, until a couple of years ago anyway, really exploring what it was about. As we're talking about prayer, and because I'm hopefully a relatively honest guy, I feel like I need to do a confessional. If I'm going to teach on prayer, I need to explain that my prayer life actually is not all that. So this is the first part, it's confessional. It'd be awkward for me, it might be awkward for you too, but we're going to go through it anyway. First of all, on, on reflection, since we've been talking about prayer, my prayer life is a bit selfish. Is this you and all? My prayer life, sometimes I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm driving along in my car and I'll pray and I'm just offloading a load of troubles. I don't get to God's glory. I don't think about anything like that. I just start praying, Father, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with this. This is really hard. This is, a, this is a shame for me. Amen. And that's my prayer done. It's just offloading troubles. Sometimes, and I've noticed this from, on reflection, I pray at specific times. I can go a while without prayer. On reflection, over my 20-year Christian life, I've gone months, maybe years, without praying and then I've been ill, or then I've wanted something, and then I've, I've had a cluster of prayers that have all come at the same time. So prayer's been something that I've kind of parked for special occasions. Sometimes it's just to ease my conscience. Do you ever get that? On a, on a night before you fall asleep, you think, oh, crikey, I really ought to pray 
because that's what Christians do. We pray. So I pray before I fall asleep just because I know that that's what Christians should do. And particularly probably with the Lord's Prayer, it's become, it can become a bit formulaic. I guess what I was thinking about that is, is that evidence of a relationship? If you were to, if you were to judge your prayer life against your relationships with your friends or your partner, how would it stand up? How would mine stand up? My relationship with God marked against what my prayer life's like. Consider, you know, would your partner, would your best friend stand for it if every time you went out for coffee with them, all you did was grumble? You just sat down, you got your cappuccino, and it was a grumble from start to finish. That was your prayer. Is that a relationship? Your friend, after a couple of months, would say, by the way, you've not asked me about me for ages. You don't really seem interested in what I want. It should be a relationship. The Lord's Prayer is not empty learnt words, but a meaningful conversation to form the basis of a relationship. We're not just supposed to pull this out of the bag. We're not just supposed to repeat it without really knowing what we're saying. So we're looking at the kingdom. And in terms of a relationship, when I thought about the kingdom, it's like exploring perhaps a lesser known characteristic of God, a lesser known facet of, personality, of his personality. It's like we're asking him what he wants. It's making it more of a relationship. Maybe you're somebody who thinks, do you know what? I don't want to admit this, and I'm never going to say it out loud, but I've never thought about the kingdom. I've never really stopped to consider the kingdom. It's never even come up in my prayers. I want to run some thoughts under your nose. Have you ever been watching TV and you've been channel flicking? Maybe this, I don't know if, if I do this all the time, channel flicking, and you'll flick across an advert that's covering the crisis in Africa and you'll see a starving kid and summing in you means you can't actually flick on anymore. You're compulsed to watch this starving child. And what your emotions are actually is you can't comprehend how when your fridge is full of food that you won't eat and you throw the biscuit tins away that have still got a few biscuits in them, how it's possible that we have starving children in the world. When you think like that, you're thinking kingdom thoughts because what you're craving is justice. What the kingdom brings is God's perfect justice. Now, you might not have made that jump. You might not have made that thought process, but that's what's happening. You're looking at this child and thinking, this isn't perfect. And you're with every, your bones ache and you think, this is really tough. How can this be what you're craving is the kingdom. In a couple of weeks, we've got, and I couldn't remember if it was Black Thursday or Black Friday. Can you remember what it is? Is it Black, Black Friday? When the shops do the big sales, and these guys who will kill their best friend to buy a TV that's £10 cheaper or two inches bigger than another TV. And you watch it and you think, look at the greed in this world. How can this be? That's kingdom thoughts. You're thinking kingdom thoughts. You're craving the kingdom. Sometimes... As Christians, we can feel a bit homesick. Do you ever get that way? You just feel like the value systems that you establish in your life, the thought patterns that you have, the things that you try and do, just put you at odds with everybody else. What you're craving is the kingdom. And I guess you crave it because we've seen Christ. We've seen his teachings. We've seen him start the kingdom. We know what it looks like. And we long for it. And we miss it. I'm going to try and do something now um, which is above my pay grade as a preacher, but I'm going to try and do it anyway. I'm going to 
do a whistle-stop tour through the Bible and talk to you about the kingdom. Now, I may get lost and I may look foolish, but I'm willing to do that for you good people because I think it's important that we get a sense that the kingdom is something that runs right through the Bible. So this is a quote that I've taken by Graham Goldsworthy. The kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule and reign. So this is the title I want you to put above this little section as we skip through the Bible. Okay, so in the beginning, God made Adam and Eve. We'll start over here just to give a sort of sense of continuity. Adam and Eve. We had God's people, people who were like God, people who were made in his image. That's where I get being like God from. And he created them and he put them in a place. And he told those people in that place to live under a certain rule system. Don't eat the fruit. Don't eat the fruit. Whatever you do, Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit. And he told them to go out and multiply. God's people in God's place, living under God's rule and in God's blessing. But we know, if there's one Bible story that we know well, it's the story of Adam and Eve. And we know what happened with Adam and Eve. They went out of God's rule and they fell out of his blessing. That's the first picture of the kingdom. And at the end of chapter one, I think it is, God says, doesn't he? It's very good. Before the fall, he says, it's very good. Actually, this is perfect. It's God's kingdom. God's authority, man in God's image, in his likeness, making more men, multiplying, going into the world. Okay, that's the first picture. Now we skip on a little bit into Genesis, and we get another character called Abraham. I guess he was called Abraham then, and he's wandering about in the Ur of the Chaldees, and God comes to him and he says, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars of the sky. He says, I'm going to give you a people. And Abraham's an old guy. He's a guy who's unlikely to have lots of kids. And God says to him, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars of the sky. And this land here, this is going to be your land. God's people, God's place. And then as the story goes on, and maybe you know this story, the the people end up chasing the the food, I guess, into Egypt, and then God redeems them out of Egypt through Moses, and on their redemptive journey back towards the promised land, he gives them on Mount Sinai, and round about Mount Sinai, he gives them the law, he gives them his rule, and then they enter his place. You've got God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing, but we know the story, don't we? Perhaps we know the story, and that the reason we've got so many books of the prophets is because the people couldn't stay under his rule. They couldn't stay under his rule, and the prophets, God kept sending them and and telling him to tell the people to get back under his rule and enjoy the blessings, and the people kept falling out of his rule. And what happened? The kingdom split, and they were conquered. But we have pictures. And I guess if you look at the Old Testament as a whole and use kingdom as a theme, it's there right throughout, right throughout the Old Testament. Then we've got 400 years of nothing, 400 years of gap, 400 years of expectation there's silence and there's thoughts of messiah and then into this bursting sense of expectation i guess as john the baptist starts to preach about the messiah that's coming jesus comes and he says in mark chapter 1 verse 15 the kingdom of god is near the kingdom of heaven is amongst you the kingdom of heaven is at hand and all the people who are listening to jesus are thinking What does he mean? What is this kingdom? What is it going to look like? And then he tells stories like the parable of the mustard seed, just to keep them guessing. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Now, I guess you could think of the mustard seed as being the smallest kind of seed you could get your hands on in those times, and it grows into this unlikely big 
tree, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that looks small and grows bigger. And just to sort of wrap up this section, at the end of Matthew's gospel, we have the Great Commission. And I want you to have in your mind, as I repeat the words of the Great Commission, Genesis chapter 1, the beginning. God's people, God's place, God's rule, and God's reign. And think about what Jesus is beginning when he says these words. Matthew 28, 18. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. Can you see any similarities there? God has given Jesus the authority. Jesus is talking to his disciples, people like him. And he's telling them to obey everything that he's taught them. They're going to stay under his rule and reign. And he tells them to, crucially, about the Great Commission, to go. Go make more people who look like you living under God's rule and reign. It's the start. It's the seed of God's kingdom. It's not its completion. It's not everywhere, but we see a glimpse of it in what it was like. So, What is the kingdom like? Jesus begins to teach about what the kingdom is like. And I guess you've got, think about who the disciples were. Think about Simon the Zealot. What was Simon the Zealot? What do you know about Simon the Zealot? What was he zealous for? He was zealous for the law and the land. And when he followed Jesus, I wonder if he was thinking, under Roman occupation, Jesus is going to lead us back to a literal Israel, a literal kingdom, and I'm going to follow him, and my sword's ready at my right-hand side. I'm ready to follow him. I'm ready to fight this fight. I wonder if that's what he was thinking. And the crowds gather around him, and this talk of miracles, and all this is happening. And then Jesus sits down on the side of a mountain and begins to teach the value of the kingdom. And he says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And everybody's watching it and thinking, what? Blessed are you if you're poor. Blessed are you if you're grieving. Blessed are you if you're meek. Blessed are you if you're merciful. Why is he saying these things? Surely that's not a blessing. Because his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And these people will receive perfect justice and perfect blessing in eternity. His kingdom doesn't come with physical battles but spiritual warfare. He doesn't plan to overthrow world leaders but model submission. He doesn't seek to lead his followers like a dictator, but as their servant. His teaching points people back to God, to his purposes and his plans and his kingdom. So that's the kingdom. And we live, I guess, in the, and this is just to put my cards on the table in terms of my theology, we live in the now and not yet. We live having seen that Jesus has started it and it's evidenced by his followers in that we obey his teachings Christ will come back again and fulfill the kingdom. It's not in its completion just yet, just so my theological cards are completely on the table. So when we pray for his kingdom to come, we're saying, God, we need the value system that's in heaven here on earth because this is an unjust place. God, we're hanging on for dear life for you to return because it's hard living out our Christian lives here. Father God, this world needs your perfect justice. It needs the teachings of Jesus throughout of it in order that it's peaceful. When we pray your kingdom come, we're looking in this direction. But the problem we've got is that that's not where our heads are at. I know all this. 
and I've read all this, and I've been taught all this, and yet last Friday night, my prayer started something like, I'm really worried about this, and I'm worried about that, and my kids are really annoying me, and Jude's doing me, Edin, please help. <laughs> Amen. And it, that's the be-all and end-all of it. And I know all about the kingdom, and yet that's my prayer, because sometimes we're self-centered, aren't we? And our prayers are self-centered. Maybe it's just me. If, you, if you've all got this covered, then you can listen to what I'm saying, but you can go home and think, well, I know about the kingdom ash as it goes, and I'm already praying for the kingdom, and it's fine. Don't worry about it. But if, if you're like me, and occasionally your prayer life's not brilliant, then listen up. It's good for you. For a long time in the world, we were pretty convinced that the world was flat. In fact, we knew it was flat. We were certain of it. And then a few years later, we realized that it wasn't flat. It was actually spherical. And we were certain that it was spherical and it didn't move. We were certain of these things. They, they, they were the foundation for our science. And when we looked around at the stars and the planets, we learned everything from, from what we understood of the, of the universe and the solar system from the, the starting point of the fact that the earth was spherical and it was still and everything else moved around it. And then this fellow called Copernicus came along and he stared at the sky for a long time. And he said, you know what? I'm not sure that we're in the middle of this solar system. Actually, see that big ball of light out there that we can't look at for very long? I think actually that might be the center of the universe and we might be going around that. And then everybody laughed at him at first because that's what happens when you discover something really clever. But eventually we came around to the idea and all our science changed. And actually, it didn't just change. Our science became right and accurate and true. And all of a sudden, when we tried to figure out what the seasons were, it made sense because we knew that the sun was in the middle and we were going around the sun, slightly tilted and turning as we went. And all our science changed. And everything, all of a sudden, made sense because we weren't the center of the universe. The sun was. I think our prayer life, I think my prayer life, can sometimes be a bit like that. My prayer life revolves around me and my circumstances, and what I'm going through. And actually, when we read through the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer takes us to another place. It says, no, your prayer life's not about you. You're involved in it, and it's good that you ask for these things, but the most important thing is that we bring glory and honor to God, and that God stays in the center of it. And when we start to pray with God in the center of it, with God right in the middle of it, then it changes how we pray. All of a sudden... Our prayers become, and I'm going to use this word, it's the best word I could come up with, more mature as Christians. Because we've learned that God's our Father. He wants to hear everything that we say. And yet he gives the disciples who are saying, tell us how to pray, Lord. Tell us what to ask for. He gives them instruction. And he says, this is how you should pray. And I think it leads them to a more mature prayer. We pray anticipating Christ's return. We pray in light of the fact that we are eternal beings. We're going to be around forever in some form. We pray knowing that God's will and purposes are better than our will and purposes. That's not always how I think when I pray. I'm pretty sure sometimes that I know what's best. And yet praying a kingdom prayer puts God's will and purposes at the center of it. Praying knowing he will return with a certainty of victory. I think sometimes our prayer lives... Certainly my prayer life in the past, maybe occasionally now, kind of runs parallel. There's what God wants. Think of it like this. There's what God wants going along like that. God's will, God's plans, and God's purposes. And there's what I want along the top. A nice car, a nice house, da-da-da-da. 
in, my, in its immaturity, and it's going along like that. And the more that we get to know God's will, the more that we pray to be in his will and understand his plans, God's purposes don't move, but slowly that gap that's between what we want and what he wants for the world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. The more we put God in the middle of our prayer life and his glory and his plans and his purpose, it becomes a relational prayer. Our will and our plans start to align more with him. We're going to take a short look now at this passage. And the lessons I've got from this passage are really very simple, but we're just going to make our way through it. I don't know if you can pop that up on the screen. I might read it through again for us. It's, yeah, that's the right one. Colossians 4, verse 2 to 6. Excuse me. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Uh, in, my, in my simplistic kind of way, I was looking for a way to apply some kingdom teaching, and I read through the prayers that followed the Gospels. I read through loads of them, and I thought, I wonder if I can find one here that is selfless and has kingdom values. And what I find was actually every prayer that you find from Romans through to the book of Revelation is a kingdom-centered prayer. Most of them are Paul's, and his focus is not on himself at all, or his circumstance. His focus is on God and his glory. And I thought, okay, so I'll just spend five or ten minutes that we can all look at this prayer and sort of mark that up against our own prayer life. So it's not me that's telling you how to pray. It's the Apostle Paul. He's pretty good at knowing how to pray. I want to remind you of a bit of context for this passage. Paul's in prison. Prison is a terrible place to be in these times. I think it's, I, everybody says, oh, prison's easy now. And I think probably I wouldn't do very well in prison now. But prison was terrible then. He's in jail. He's in jail for talking about Jesus. And what his prayer's about is talking about Jesus some more. And what he's hoping for is a chance to talk about Jesus some more. It's a bit of a death wish, really. And Paul, you know, Paul's going on about this, and yet, in talking about Jesus, he's going to stay in jail. He's on, he's on the path to death, ultimately. And in his prayer life, he's not helping himself any, because he's looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus some more, which just means he's going to be in jail some more, and he's going to be coming nearer his death some more. Every time he talks about Jesus, and you can read this in Romans, or no, the books after that, he, he's getting stoned He's getting beaten up, he's getting thrown out of towns, and yet his prayer life remains like, not like mine, like that. Looking back, I'm a bit of a World War II geek. I've probably got other geeky elements to me, but World War II gets me every time. If there's a documentary on World War II, I'm in, and I'm going to watch it, and the world can stop for all I care, and I'll watch it. When you look back at World War II now, and this is what the historians say, I don't know, it's certain that we were going to win. From the moment that we occupied northern France, from the moment that we got our foot in the door there, from the moment we got on Omaha Beach and Sword Beach and all those other beaches, we were going to win the war. That's what historians say, looking back from their armchairs very comfortably at the war. I guess if you were Joe Bloggs, who's on the front line, who's been parachuted in behind enemy lines, as it were, and he's got to guard a bridge, 
If you were to tell him that they were certain that we're going to win the world war, he'd say, no chance. I'm, you know, I'm scared to death for my own life, and I'm expecting death imminently. But from our perspective, victory looks pretty likely. It looks pretty certain. World War II victory. From the moment we cracked D-Day, we were going to win. If I prayed Paul's prayer, and I was in jail, I'm not sure I'd share his perspective on life. You've probably hinted already, I, can, I, can, I have pathetic moments. I think my prayer would be something like, Father God, there's rats, and I hate rats, and I'm really hungry, and I could do with something like a McDonald's to eat, and I'm starved, and this, is not a sh- this can't be your plan that I'm in here, right? Please deal with it, amen. That would probably be the nuts and bolts of my faithless prayer. And yet Paul prays, and there's irony in this prayer. I don't know if you've spotted it. He prays for an open door. Brilliant. He says, I pray, pray that you'll open a door for me. It's not open a door that he can get out, which is where my prayer would start. Father God, open a door because I'm terrified. I'm starving. Let me out. It's open a door so that the gospel can be proclaimed. Look where his head's at in terms of what he's asking for. That is a kingdom prayer right there. His focus is not on his own misfortune and his own circumstance. His focus is on what's going to happen to the kingdom. His own circumstances, they get mentioned, but it's a footnote mention. I'm in jail for the gospel. That's, that's as far as he goes. He doesn't indulge it. It's not all of his prayers. His focus is on the kingdom and kingdom values. And as I'm saying all this, I'm aware that sometimes our lives, we feel like a soldier who's been parachuted in behind enemy lines. And it's just about surviving. And what we ask for is just about survival. I want to remind you that we win this. The kingdom will be established. There's nothing anybody, any power, any president, any politician or anybody can do now to stop that. It's going to happen. And at the moment, it might not feel like that. We're in church, and there's thousands of people enjoying life out there, and that's fine. And it might not always feel like that, and life might actually be hard. And our prayer life might reflect somebody who's just hanging on every day. But I want to encourage you to pray for the kingdom, because in the end, God wins. He's already started winning, and it's only a matter of time before he fulfills his kingdom, and everybody has to share in his values and his judgment. Paul's not unaware of his circumstances, but in his prayers, this is not where his priorities are at. It doesn't, his prayers aren't confined to the prison cell, as perhaps mine would be. He doesn't say, how can this circumstance be? He says, how can this circumstance be used for God's glory? And as I'm saying those words now, I know that God's going to slap me around the face the next time that I pray to him and say, that's not your prayer. Ash, that's not what you're asking for. It's a challenge to us, I guess, isn't it? To look outside the box to see the bigger picture. One of my favorite clips out of any World War II film I've seen involves um, the best soldiers of them who always see the bigger picture, aren't they? There's gunfire everywhere, and, and, and it's, you know, they're going to they're gonna lose the battle. And there's a guy who stands up, and it's probably all the films now, and unravels this big map and sees the whole big picture of the war. And he makes his judgment about his tactics and his strategy based on the big picture. It's not based on the fact that he's got bullets whistling past his ears. He's got, it's based on the big picture. 
And I guess the challenge for us as Christians who try and pray the kingdom, who try and bother to start our prayers, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, is to keep our minds in the big picture, to keep our minds in the kingdom. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. We're not to live as people of the world, but as citizens of his heavenly kingdom. Um, we were on the beach in Barcelona last year, and um, I'd, we were on mission. We call it mission. It was, we did a bit of mission. We were on holiday, I think, more, more than mission, if I'm being really honest. We did a bit of mission. But some of the chat, um, there, were, there, was an, there, was, there was resentment about, about UK people, I think because of the, the, northern, you know, the whole north, northern Spain, and I can't remember all the history, but there was a bit of resentment about the English. And I tried to, from a completely unknowledgeable position, tried to defend our position. And then when I couldn't defend our position, I just tried to be a nice guy and try and make them like English people more. And I didn't succeed massively either. But then... None of my efforts went anywhere because we went to the beach in Barcelona and at the back of the beach was this bunch of guys and they all had some carriage and they all had a glass with them. They were all well oiled and they were by the, by the shower area and I could hear the rammy every time any, any girl went back that way there was just this huge rammy and I just thought, oh no, please don't let them be English. Please don't let them be English people and sure enough, they were English idiots and they were just lording it over any girl that went past and all the effort I'd put in that couple of weeks to try to represent my country with poor arguments and politeness fell away in the, by the reputation of these yobbos who were just leering over all these women. It didn't really matter. My, my, my efforts carried no weight now because they thought, oh no, there you go. They're citizens of the United Kingdom. That's what citizens of the United Kingdom look like. And it just kind of floored everything. It's really important, I think, as Christians, I think more increasingly so, that we are good citizens of the kingdom. Not, not because we'll get bigger houses, not because of, of any kind of blessing like that, but because people need to see the values of Christ in how we live. They need to see that. And, and the, the words are so careful here, you need to ask for wisdom because it's so slippery have you noticed in conversations you have with, with people who aren't Christians, and it feels like you're just trying to trip me up with everything that you say. You've got to be so careful not to slip into those traps. Ask for wisdom. We need to be making the most of every opportunity. That's another a command in this passage. Spend your time doing things of eternal value. This is a real kingdom sort of challenge, I think. How, how I think of my day and my time and my life based on mostly career and stuff like that. This is how we schedule ourselves. And yet the challenge for us here is to think of our lives in light of the kingdom. Use your time wisely because there's going to be a time when Jesus comes back and, and makes an assessment on what you've done with all that time. Use it wisely. Let your conversation be full of grace and season with salt. In everything that we do, let's be salty Christians because we're not from round here as it were we're heaven's citizens and we and we are responsible to God and not to man
in conclusion, as, as, I guess as we wait for God to fulfill his kingdom, as we live in the now and not yet, let's remember that when, when we're in our darkest moments, when, life, when we're getting shot at, when it's really hard, when all we want to do is cry actually and pray for ourselves in a selfish way, let's remember, even though it's hard, that God's kingdom is the most important thing and his glory. Let's seek his kingdom first if we can and let's trust that he will add all these things onto us, all these blessings, if we faithfully seek his kingdom.